So uh, today we're starting the book of Exodus, like I said, and uh, I'm super excited about this, and, and if you've never studied this book, this is a great, great book to study, because I think the Exodus is one of the most explosive, compelling, formative stories in the history of the world. All right, so if you're a non-Christian, if you're somebody who's maybe not familiar with Christian faith, I mean, this story in the book of Exodus is one of the most formative stories in the history of the world. I mean, it is absolutely incredibly powerful. And I was reminded of that this past week as I was, uh, I was looking at this book called America's Prophet, Moses and the American Story. And so this is a fascinating book where a professor, uh, Bruce Feller, explores the impact of Moses and the Exodus on American history. And his central theme is that the, the story of Exodus was central to the formation of our nation. And so this is how he begins the book. He says, Moses was an American icon long before there was an America. When the pilgrims left England in 1620, they described themselves as, quote, the chosen people fleeing their pharaoh to the promised land, America. And when they got to Cape Cod, they thanked God for letting them pass through their fiery Red Sea. So they're comparing, uh, the early pilgrims comparing their flight from uh, Britain to Exodus, and then by the time of the revolution, when they were on the Liberty Bell, uh, one of the quotes on the Liberty Bell is, is a quote from one of the five books of Moses. And then later on, when the early founding fathers were, were thinking about an image to put on the national seal, it was uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson who argued strongly that the image should be of Moses. Now, incidentally, uh, John Adams wanted it to be Hercules. <laughs> I don't know why, but, but, uh, but they wanted it to be Moses on the American seal. And then you look at all the political figures. Almost every single important political figure in the U.S. was compared to Moses. And so George Washington at the eulogies, uh, in the eulogies at his death was compared to Moses. Abraham Lincoln compared to Mo Moses. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Jr. Uh, compared himself to Moses. Of course, the Exodus narrative was uh, formative and, and helpful to the American slaves as they suffered their affliction. And even in, in modern American history, even modern American presidents love to compare themselves to Moses. And so Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, both compared themselves to Moses. And uh, what's interesting is uh, George uh, Bush, George W. Bush, he said he was inspired to run for president when his pastor in Texas uh, preached a sermon on Moses, and the pastor said this, Moses was not a man of words, <laughs> and yet he still led his people to freedom. This inspired George W. Bush to run for president. And then you look at all of our national icons. Uh, the Statue of Liberty was apparently partly based on Moses with stars in her hat and the, the, uh, you know, the tablet in her arm. And then even Superman, if you can believe it, even Superman was partly based on the story of Moses. And so you're saying, I don't know about that. The comic historians, or historians of comics, I should say, <laughs> probably are some comic historians, but they, they, often they'll say that uh, Superman was compared to Moses. And so just as baby Moses floated down the Nile to escape death, so too baby, baby Superman was launched by a rocket into orbit to avoid extinction, right? Superman, based on Moses. Uh, Bruce Feller uh, concludes his argument by saying this, you cannot understand American history without understanding Moses and the Exodus. He is our true founding father, and his face belongs on Mount Rushmore, he says. Now, I don't know about that. 
But here's, here's what's true. Uh, you cannot understand the Christian story without understanding Moses. You will never understand the death and resurrection of Jesus without understanding the Exodus story. And what's so interesting is when you look at the way the early Christians uh, talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus, they always drew on the language of the Exodus story. Or even you look at the Gospels, you have Jesus who was baptized in the water. He went through the water. And then he spent not 40 years, but 40 days in the wilderness. And then he went up on a mountain and he gave the law. He gave the Sermon on the Mount. Right? And so step by step, the life of Jesus is, is almost at every single point compared to Moses. He's the new Moses, the greater Moses. And then even, do you remember the night when he was, before he was crucified? He sat down with his disciples and he shared a meal with them. What meal was this? It was the Passover meal. The Passover meal was instituted at the time of the Exodus. And so what was Jesus doing? He was interpreting his death and resurrection in light of the Exodus story by giving this meal. You will never understand what Jesus did for you on the cross without understanding the Exodus. And what's so interesting is, as I was thinking about all the sermons I've gave here at Fellowship uh, in the past five and a half years, I mean, I've preached on Old Testament books, New Testament books. I have never looked at the book of Exodus. And it's kind of a shame because this book is so important. You will never understand what Jesus did for you without understanding this formative story. And so I am so excited to go through this narrative today with you. It is so important. It is so formative. And that's the introduction to the book. So let's get into it. This is the first chapter, and we're, we're going to, like I said, we're going to go through the entire first chapter of the book of Exodus today. And what we're going to see here is that the book of Exodus begins in a crisis. It, be, it, begins, it begins in a really dark place. I mean, this is, a, this is a horrific, one of the most horrific stories in all of the Bible. You cannot sanitize this story. I mean, it is dark. It is horrific. And this is where the, the book of Exodus begins. And, and so I want to go through, and I just simply want to uh, go through uh, the narrative, and I want to make three different observations. And I'm not going to give them all up front. We're going to make them as we go through. But here's the first one. Uh, the first one, the first thing we see here in the narrative is that God's plan is threatened. So verse 1, God's plan is threatened. Let's begin. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all the generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. We'll stop there. And so uh, the, the book of Exodus begins on a positive note here, at least in the first uh, seven verses. And it begins here with four. You can't really see it in English, but the, the text begins with four. Why does it begin with four or, or and is another way to begin? It's because Exodus is a continuation of a large story. Uh, the book of Exodus is part of uh, the five books of Moses, which is called the Pentateuch. Can we all say that together? Pentateuch. These are the first five books of Moses, first five books of the Bible. Exodus is the second one of these books. And the book of Exodus continues a long story that begins in Genesis. And it's important for us to see this because uh, the, the Bible is meant to be read as a narrative. 
The Bible is meant to be read as one big story, especially the first five books of the Bible. Now, the problem is we usually take the Bible in little 10-verse chunks, right? We, we come to church, we do a little 10-verse chunk, and then we move on, and next week we'll do the next 10 verses. But the Bible is not meant to be read, you know, piece by piece like that. This is part of a larger story, and, and if you don't understand that, you're going to miss some of the significance here. It's almost like when you're watching Star Wars, you know, and, and you'll, you'll watch one particular movie, and, and really, unless you've begun at the beginning with, uh, why did it begin at four? I don't know why it began at four, but uh, unless you, you know the whole story, you're going to miss so much significance. You know, in the latest one where Chewbacca comes out, you know, on, onto the ship, and you're like, oh, Chewbacca, Han Solo, and if you don't know the other, you're like, who's the hairy guy, and what's this Han Solo character, but if you've seen the whole if you've seen all the movies, you know the story, you get the significance. And that's the way it is with the Bible. And so the book of Exodus begins here, and it's incredibly significant. If you don't know that, it just begins with a list of names. You know, here's uh, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, and you're thinking, okay, lots of names and some unfortunate names like Gad. Like, who would name their, their son Gad? But, uh, but that's all you're thinking unless you know the whole story. Because notice it says the people of Israel are in Exodus and they're multiplying. They're being fruitful and they're multiplying. And this alludes to an early part of the story. Remember, way back in the book of Genesis, God gave Abraham a promise. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. He says, your children are going to be as many in number as the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. And I'm going to multiply you. And your people are going to increase, they're going to expand. And here you see at the very beginning of Exodus that all is going according to God's plan. The people are in Egypt and they're multiplying, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And so God, God is continuing his promise. The people of Israel are multiplying. They're becoming a great nation. They're on track to be becoming the blessing for the entire, entire world. Within verse 8, we see that God's plan is threatened. And so we'll look here. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. If war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field, all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so uh, the book of Exodus, it starts well, God's plan is going, is, is God's people are flourishing, God's plan is, is working, you know, things are going right, but then suddenly it says, a new pharaoh rose in Egypt. And with this new pharaoh, God's plan is threatened because this guy is an absolute tyrant. Uh, if God's plan is, is to bless the world and, you know, for human flourishing, this pharaoh wants to stop that plan. This pharaoh is absolutely power hungry. It reminds me of Henry Kissinger said this, power is the greatest aphrodisiac. Power attracts, power fascinates, power sells, 
Power makes things happen. Power helps maintain the illusion that I am in control. And this Pharaoh has the illusion that he is in control. He is, he is, he is dominant, he is oppressive, and he wants to stop God's people from flourishing. And God's plan is always opposed in the world. You know, God wants to bless the world, and one thing that is absolutely sure, this plan will be opposed. God's good plan to bless all of humanity will be threatened along the way. And so uh, this Pharaoh, he wants to eliminate God's people, and so how does he do it? Well, Pharaoh has a plan. He wants to get rid of God's people, and, and this is what he's going to do. He, he's, he wants to eliminate the, the, the Hebrews, but he first needs to create a narrative of fear. And this is what power dictators always, uh, powerful dictators always do. They, they want to get rid of a people, a minority group, and so first what they've got to do is create a narrative of fear. These minorities are dangerous. These minorities are going to threaten us. If there's a war, they're going to join the enemy. And so they, they need to be... They need to be eliminated. We need to get rid of them. You need to be afraid of the Hebrews. And so he's creating a narrative of fear. And it works. All the people of Egypt are afraid of the the Hebrews. Yes, they are a minority, but they're viewed as a dangerous minority. And then what does he do? He legalizes their oppression. And so what we see is, this is his plan. He's going to create a a narrative of fear, and then he's going to legalize the the oppression of these people. He's going to enslave them. And it's going to be legal. And so he makes them work. There's this little verse here where work is, it, it sort of highlights their, the, the, the ruthlessness of the work in verse 13. It says, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and their lives were bitter with hard service and, their, and brick and mortar. And in all kinds of work in the, in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made their, them work as slaves. And so this is brutal, legalized slavery. And there is nothing that dehumanizes human life more than legalized oppression. Because there's nobody to cry out to. Who are you going to cry for help? The government, the people in charge are the ones who are oppressing you. And there's nothing more dehumanizing than that. But things get worse. Uh, not only does he, does he enslave them, because we'll see here later that this doesn't work. You know, he tries to work them to death, but they continue to multiply. And so th- things make a turn even for the worse. And here we see genocide. He's finally going to resort to killing all the Hebrew boys. Now, there is, this is a different sort of crazy, right? I mean, this is absolutely power-hungry craziness here. You know, there, there is normal crazy. Right, and then there's, then there's oppressor crazy, and then there, let's go kill all the little boys. And this is absolutely nuts. And so they go out, and, they, and they, they gather up all the little boys. Now, why the little boys and not the little girls? It's because little girls aren't dangerous. And little girls are not a threat to the empire. And you can sell the little girls as sex slaves. And they, and they're, they're, they could be trafficked. And they could be taken advantage of. But little boys are dangerous because they can join a revolution. And so he makes the decision to kill all the little boys, to throw, to, uh, and, and, he, and he commands the midwives to do that. And what I want to do is stop here and just notice the, the point that God's plan is always threatened. Because this happens in Egypt, but if you're familiar with world history, this cycles over and over again throughout uh, humanity over and over again. There's always been oppressors who've always created a narrative of fear, 
and have always tried to, to oppress minority people groups. This sort of evil, this sort of oppress, oppression is something that happens over and over again throughout human history. From Nazi Germany to China to even the slave, slavery in early, the slave trade in early American history. This sort of thing happens all the time. And what we learn here is that there is very real evil in this world. God's plan to bless all of humanity will always be threatened. And what the author of Exodus wants us to see is that, is that this is an absolute reality. When you look at the world and you see oppression like this, it is horrific it can never be sanitized, but it is normative in this world that we live in. Because God's plan is always threatened. Yes, God created the world and the world is beautiful, but it's also broken. There's something in this world called sin, and there's something in the world called evil. And it's always breaking in and trying to threaten what God is trying to do. Evil in the world is an absolute reality, and the Exodus recognizes this. And I love it because the Bible always meets us where we are, doesn't it? It meets us in the real world. And it doesn't uh, sanitize or candy coat the ugly realities of oppression and evil and injustice in human history. Disney movies do. Right? Disney movies often create, kind of candy coat the world that we live in. But the Bible is very realistic. Uh, I remember several years ago, I, was, uh, I used to preach at a church in Louisiana, in Louisiana, uh, Natchitoches, Louisiana. Anybody heard of Natchitoches, Louisiana? Uh, cool little French city. I used to go down there and preach at this little conservative Presbyterian church, about 12 people. And uh, I used to do every part of the service. So I'd get there, I'd do the call to worship, I would lead all the, the hymns, as you know, this woman would play the piano, and then I would preach the sermon, I would give the offering, and finally I'd give the benediction. And um, you should be glad that I'm not leading music uh, here. But this little church, I remember this conservative little church, uh, before the service they'd do Sunday school, and the whole, you know, little children, old, you know, adults, they, they would all do Sunday school together. And I remember we, we, were, uh, we were doing Sunday school, the kids were there, and they, they would go around the room, and everybody would read the narrative. Like, you know, five-year-old, six-year-old, adult, you know, 12-year-old, they would all go through and read the narrative. And we were going through the book of Exodus, or uh, uh, Judges, which is a very gritty book, a very PG-13 book. I remember these little kids started to read the narrative, and it was like genocide. And then I think the word uh, prostitute was in there. And then, you know, it was just this gritty, dark narrative. I was thinking, should kids be reading this? And we can debate whether they should have been reading this. But here's the reality. These kids were being introduced to the world as we know it. They weren't going to get that from a Disney movie. They are going to get it from the Bible. We live in a world that was created by God, but it's broken. And there is very real evil, and there's very real injustice, and there's very real oppression that goes on. And the Bible meets us in that darkness. And the Bible says, don't be surprised when you encounter evils of various kind and kinds in this world because evil is a reality. God's plan is always threatened. And that's the first thing we learn from the book of Exodus. 
<clears throat> but let's go on and let's see the second thing that we learn. Uh, not only do we learn that God's plan is threatened, but the second thing we learn is that God's plan is not thwarted. Okay, so in this narrative we see uh, God's plan is threatened. There's very real darkness, evil oppression. Uh, Pharaoh's will to power is threatening God's will for life. That happens in our world. But second of all, we're going to see that even though uh, evil opposes God's plan and threatens God's plan, it cannot thwart God's plan. <clears throat> I, want you, I want you, I want to draw your attention to verse 12 here. <clears throat> Notice what it says. It says, but the more they oppressed, they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now, I love this little verse because here's what it's showing us. It's saying that despite Pharaoh's plan to destroy, to destroy God's people, destroy the, despite you know, God's plan being threatened, God's plan will not be thwarted. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. And he doesn't have a Congress or checks and balances on his power. He can do whatever he wants. And so here's the most powerful man in the world, leading the most powerful empire of the world at that time. He has all the machinery of that empire at his disposal, and none of this can stop God's plan. In fact, the more Pharaoh tries to stop God's plan, the more he almost, by those actions, moves God's plan forward. He wants to eliminate God's people. God wants to multiply God's people. But as Pharaoh tries to eliminate them, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So even Pharaoh, the greatest power, and even the cosmic evil underneath the Pharaoh, cannot thwart God's plan. God's plan is strong. God's plan, like a freight train, moves forward throughout human history. And although it is opposed over and over again, God's plan will not be thwarted. You cannot stop God's plan to bless the world. And you've got to see the irony here. The more Pharaoh tries to stop it, the more the noose is tightened around his neck. And almost at every single point. So he, he enslaves them, and they multiply. And then he tries to kill them, and it incites acts of courageous resistance. And then he tries to, you know, uh, throw the babies on the river, and, uh, you know, this... Moses' mom does throw the baby on the river. He goes into the, the, uh, the palace in Egypt. And even what Pharaoh does paves the way for Moses to become the ideal deliverer of his people. God's plan can be threatened and opposed, but the greatest power on earth cannot oppose, cannot destroy or eliminate or thwart God's plan. God will save his world. And we see this all the way through human history. I mean, you see uh, just the power of God's plan all the way through human history. Although there's darkness in the world, the darkness will never overcome God's plan. So later on, uh, do you remember when Jesus was born? And do you remember he, he was born under a very oppressive, powerful empire, Rome, under a, ver under a very, very similar uh, dictator. What's his name? King, King Herod, somebody knows your Bible. And what did Herod try to do? Herod creates an edict, and he says all the little babies are to be killed in Israel. 
But somehow Jesus escapes that. And out of Egypt I have called my son. And he lives his life. And remember at the very end of his life, that same empire tried to destroy Jesus Christ. It tried to, and all the cosmic evil in the world tried to destroy Jesus. But even on Jesus' death, God's plan is not forwarded. It's, it's actually moved forward. There is nothing the devil or all the evil in this world can do to stop God's plan. Even the greatest that the evil in this world can do only moves God's plan forward. And so Jesus dies, he rises again from the dead. And then you remember in the early church, uh, there was another great evil uh, dictator under Rome. Remember what his name was? He was was, uh, lighting Christians on fire. Anybody knows who this man was? Yeah, Nero, very similar to Pharaoh, very similar to Herod. Nero is trying to snuff out the early church. He's trying to stop God's plan. And he's lighting Christians on fire. And yet the more the Christians are persecuted, the more they multiply. And Christianity spreads throughout the Roman Empire. God's plan to bless the world cannot be stopped. Paul the Apostle, was, uh, he was under one of these uh, do- dominating empires. And he was persecuted and he was oppressed and they tried to get rid of Paul. And at one time Paul says, although I am crushed, I am not destroyed. God cannot be thwarted. His plan to bless and save the world will move forward. Now this doesn't mean that we don't groan. Because even in in the Exodus, as as the slavery was going on, uh, the people of Israel groaned and they were were just groaning for God to to help them and they were uh, filled with fear. And we often groan and we're filled with fear when we see the evil in the world. But at the end of the day, Christians proclaim that God's plan to bless his creation will not be thwarted. That's the second thing we see here. <clears throat> Yesterday, I was talking to my sister. And uh, we, we've got a, a, a family friend, and the staff has been praying for this family friend who, has, who got brain cancer. He had five brain tumors that were discovered in his brain about five months ago. And this man was a picture of health. He, was, he would walk five miles every day. He was only 67 years old, and, and so uh, uh, last August he was diagnosed with five brain tumors. And from that time, there was just a quick decline in his health. I mean, he just went down rapidly. And this is a beloved family friend. This is a man that, that I've known since I've been born. He's, he's, he was a beloved family friend. I mean, he's just part of my life, my sister's life, my family's life. And uh, a, a couple weeks ago, or a couple days ago, rather, he passed away. And I remember my, my sister, I was talking to her on the phone yesterday, and she said, Brent, she said, the, the world is a very dark place right now for me. And she said, everything seems like it's out of joint. Nothing seems right. She said, 2018 is turning out to be a pretty lousy year. <laughs> and maybe some of you feel that way today. But listen, although we groan as Christians, although we, we, we experience the evil in our lives, and in our world. God's plan will not be thwarted. Like a freight train, his plan to bless the world will not be thwarted. And there is evil, and it is opposed, and yet God's plan cannot be stopped. And this is the second thing we see in the narrative. Although Pharaoh tries his best, he cannot stop God's plan to bless the world. But I want to to point out a final thing in the story here, and that is that... As God's plan moves forward, here's the third point, 
God's plan works through courageous acts. God's plan hinges on courageous deeds done, done, in fact, by very insignificant people. And so here's what I want you to see. We'll begin in verse 15 again. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other was Puah. So if you're looking for names uh, for your little uh, girls uh, just born, Shipra and Puah. But these are pretty awesome women. Uh, verse 16, it says, when, when you serve as, as when, Pharaoh said, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on, their, on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall let her live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they were vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God God dwelt well with the midwives and the people multiplied, there it is again, and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We'll stop there. The final thing I want you to see here, again, is that God's plan moves forward uh, through the courageous acts, these wonderful little deeds done by the midwives. Now, uh, what is a midwife? If you're not familiar, uh, a midwife is, uh, these were women that uh, were there at the birth of children to aid the process of delivery. And in this day and age, uh, the the midwives were typically uh, women who were childless themselves. So they were women who weren't able to have children. And what this meant is that they were very low down on the social totem pole. So women were uh, viewed kind of lesser than men in that day and age, right? They were lower than men. But midwives were actually really low. They were lower than most women. Uh, If you were a midwife and you couldn't have children, people typically, they they would view you as, uh, you know, just a, a sad, you're in a very sad situation at best. And at worst, you were cursed by the gods, These were very insignificant uh, women. But here's the irony. These these women who are so insignificant become the agents that God uses to move his plan forward in the world. God's plan isn't thwarted, but it's moved forward by the courageous actions of these women. Because what did they do? Uh, Notice uh, Pharaoh commanded them to, to kill the children, and they didn't do it. And Pharaoh said, why did you let them live? And so they, they lie, basically. They said, the Hebrew women, they give birth so quickly. We don't have time to kill them. They're, they give birth, baby's out, and it's all over. Oh, if you're a woman, you're like, I wish my birth would have been that easy. Um, but this is what they said. And because of their actions, the, the Hebrew children are spared, and the people of Israel begin to, they continue to multiply. This is a creative act of resistance. This is a courageous, courageous, creative act of resistance against the empire. And God uses these actions to move his plan forward. And here's the point. God's plan will be threatened. There will be evil in the world, injustice in the world, that will oppose God's good plan. God's plan is not going to be thwarted. 
It will move forward. God will save his people and his world. But God does it so often through very small, courageous acts of very faithful people. And you never know whether the action that you're going to be doing, that you do, is going to be used by God to move his plan forward. Yesterday I was driving down the street and I saw a a couple, I won't mention their names because they might be embarrassed, but I saw a couple, a, a faithful couple in our church out in front of the church watering the plants. And one of our members drove by and, and took a picture of them and said, do they always do that? And I said, yeah, they're awesome. Every single weekend they're out there doing that. A small little act of faithfulness. And yet that little act of faithfulness can be used by God to move his plan forward. And so I want you to look at your life. I mean, maybe you're insignificant like these midwives. Maybe you are somebody who is socially low on the totem pole. You never know in your life what sort of creative act of resistance against the empire might move God's plan forward. Right? So there's oppression in this world. There's injustice. You know, there are, child, there are kids who, who grow up without a parent. You know, products of divorce and abuse and things like that. You never know whether you becoming a foster parent or maybe uh, becoming a surrogate parent from the kids across the street might be what God uses to move his plan forward. There's poverty in this world. You know, this, there, that because, because of evil, there's poverty in this world. You never know how God is going to use your serving, you know, down at our Father's table might use your faithfulness to move his plan forward. There's divorce. There's all sorts of hatred and anger within marriage. You never know how God is going to use your faithfulness in marriage to move his plan forward. Kids grow up just, uh, you know, immersed in our culture, our consumeristic culture, and you never know how being a good parent, day by day, teaching your children how to walk with Jesus might be a creative act of resistance against the world, the evils of the world we live in. What this, this last piece tells us is that our lives matter in the long run. And you never know whether your little act of creative resistance, your little act of faithfulness, might further God's plan. And ultimately, we see this in Jesus. Jesus was God's faithful servant that risked his life and actually gave his life so that we all might be saved, and ultimately, he moves God's plan forward. The book of Exodus points ultimately to Jesus' faithfulness. The true and better Moses the true and better midwife who continues God's plan forward despite all the evil that's against it. And so we're going to get into this book and we're going to, here's our plan uh, for the next several weeks. We're going to just go through this narrative and hopefully by looking at this narrative we'll understand a little bit more what it means on Easter that Jesus Christ died and rose again in order to move God's good plan forward. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage, and <clears throat> in many, many ways it's a dark passage and uh, filled with oppression and injustice and evil, darkness. And Father, we, we thank you, God, that despite all of that, you are stronger than the darkness, Lord. 
And ultimately in Jesus, you came into this world to move your plan forward. The light came into the world and the darkness did not overcome it, but you overcame the darkness. And Father, I pray that in all of our lives, we might overcome evil with good. God, like these midwives, that we might be faithful just as Jesus was faithful. And God, that you might use us to move your good plan for human flourishing forward. We pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.